Welcome to Rage Against the Mainstream, your full spectrum source for all things music, insight, and opinion. Today's date is November 8th, 2021. My name is Bill, and I'm joined here with Michael. Hello, everybody. So, did you remember to set your clocks back? Yeah, <laughs> yeah I, I love the whole falling back an hour. Yeah, spring forward, fall back, yeah. Get, a, get an extra hour sleep. Yeah, well, that's the thing. Well, you have a dog, I have a dog. They, they it doesn't matter to them. No. You know, Kevin <laughs> still has me awake at 5 in the morning. <laughs> it's 5 in the morning to him, regardless of my clock says 4. <laughs> so, um, have you encountered anything new or interesting in the past week? Yeah, so I was looking at up and coming as we're, when we start talking about music history we we're talking about Bono and as you all know Bono is very politically active and he actually which is unusual became friends with President George Bush really the second one yeah the man. second person um At first, you would think he would be anti-establishment, but then he became, he he met with several politicians and he even visited the White House. And actually, Bush then, he signed legislation uh, about for AIDS relief, for an AIDS relief program. And it was credited with saving 17 million lives over the life of the program. And he said that Bono was the initiative for this and it never would have made it out of Congress had he not... Oh, wow. You know, been engaged in this AIDS... Yeah. uh, ...relief program. So, he's... Bono, you know, he wasn't... Even though being politically active, he was still... I don't want to say cross the aisle to the establishment... To get yeah. things done that other musicians are so anti-establishment, they wouldn't even think of it. Well, it's just so funny because that's what they had started out with was being anti-establishment. Yeah. You know, they were just another, like, punk band. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that's crazy, though. Yeah, so, and um, he, he's done so much um, work like that, he, even with um, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, all those things. He's Yeah. Done, and he's really such a humanitarian um, that he's he's not afraid to go against public opinion to get things done. Yeah. Well, that's the thing, too. After you, uh, you know, throw your album on people's phones, you know, uh, what's the word I'm looking for here? Uh, unironically, you just give it to them. And, you know, not even to be funny, just like to be serious, I guess at that point, you don't really, uh, yeah, nothing else really bothers you anymore. No. <laughs> no. So that is cool though. Yeah. I, and you know, for as many artists that were involved with the whole AIDS thing, it's crazy that he was the one that did the most mm-hmm. to actually make, you know, to actually make that progress. It's just wild. I never, I never knew that. I never and actually going to the white house. Yeah. And sitting down and talking to the president and getting something done. That's crazy. Face to face. So, hey, <laughs> he, got, he got it done. 
Yeah, that's just wild. Mm-hmm. So that's something I learned. Okay. I knew, I knew they were set in the right spot. That was just, that was dumb on my part. Um, How about you? Well, recently, Bad Wolves have uh, released their album, Dear Monsters. Um, this is the new album that does not feature Tommy Vexed anymore because he uh, went total right wing and you know everyone everyone's his enemy now and whatever and um not gonna lie i listened to it and it does have a couple good tracks on it but it's nothing like that first album disobey that came out like that album like grabbed me and it was just like this is like this something that's gonna be like cool and then the second album came out and then this one came out um, I'm not going to say it's not, it's not good, but I wouldn't recommend it to anybody. And it kind of sucks because I was dick riding these guys really hard for a while, <laughs> but yeah, that it's definitely interesting. <laughs> so he left the band. Yes. Tom. Well, there was like a dispute on social media. Of course, everything gets brought out to social media. Like it's a boxing ring now. Yeah. And um, I don't really know the exact story, but I'm pretty sure it was due to his political beliefs and he was like speaking on behalf of the band. They were just kind of like, we're not down with this shit. Like Mm -hmm. as anyone, as anyone else would as a public figure in something like that, like, you know, we don't want to take a stand because we're not going to isolate anybody. Right. It's one of the few times that I feel like someone should really take uh, a page out of like Dave Grohl's book. Like, this dude sells out, like, the O2 Arena in London. He doesn't take a political stance. Or he does, but it's not, like, you know, it's not QAnon. (laughs) But that's another discussion. All right. On this day in music history. On this day in music history. November 8th, 1986. At the Country Club in Los Angeles, California, Metallica played their first show with bassist Jason Newsted, the replacement for Cliff Burton, who was killed in a tour bus accident back in September. This was an extremely pivotal point in Metallica's Metallica's uh, trajectory to being one of the biggest metal bands in the world, or one of the biggest bands in the world. Um... At this point in time, they were hazing the absolute shit out of Jason Newstead. And in my opinion, with no disrespect to Cliff Burton or anyone else that was involved with that band, I think Jason, I think Jason was the, um, he was the perfect basis for the, for the band or for the job. And you listen to like the later albums and even though there's no bass really on Injustice for All, there's a edited version on YouTube that is called like and justice for Jason. And to hear that album with the actual bass tracks on it turned up, you can see what that dude was capable of doing in that band. But yeah, that's crazy. I mean, they, well, they were in the middle of the tour for master of puppets. So 
this was a very, very, very important point in their, uh, in their career. But wow. I think it's kind of funny how they just have this like in the annals. Like, yeah, this is when Jason Newsted plays his first show. <laughs> and sometimes you find the, um, when something happens to a band, whether it's tragic or not, and they're, and they're looking for a new member, sometimes they find them in the most unusual places. Yeah. I know with, um, Leonard Skinner was looking for a keyboard player and they were trying all these different people and the Sky on the Road crew played the piano. A couple of licks like, oh, you're in the band. <laughs> yeah, he was already like kind of like in the band, but Billy, now he was. Yeah, Billy Powell. He was <laughs> Billy Powell was all of a sudden and he's a great piano player. I was like, okay. He was there the whole time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> you know. All it took was for their uh, piano player to get, you know, Iced yeah. in a plane crash, and the same thing with um, with Genesis when Peter Gabriel left. They auditioned so many, so many. Says goodbye. What the hell just happened there? We have ghosts. Yeah, right. We're having some technical difficulties here on the show. Video will resume soon. We're going to get this figured out here. What the hell's going on? Now I'm upside down. Now I'm right side up. They got <laughs> full batteries. All right. Can you do the same thing for that one? Close it? Yep. Close it, then reopen it. Ain't that some shit. And then just hit the big button in the back there. That yeah, that was weird that they, they were whatever. <laughs> of course, this couldn't happen last week closer to Halloween. Nah, it's just some ghost in the machine. Hmm. Well, video is now restored. Okay. <laughs> now, I was saying that the Genesis, when, when Peter Gabriel left, they, they auditioned God knows how many singers and Playing drums, Phil Collins. He yeah. He wound up being the guy. Which and is so funny to me, though, because they're two very, very different vocal stylings. That they were just right. like, oh, I guess we're doing a complete 180 now. Yeah. <laughs> well, it was the writing style uh, that Phil Collins and the band decided to go in a different direction. But when they sang harmonies together on the early albums, you could tell they, the voices were, they fit. They yeah. sounded good singing harmony together. But they solo-wise... They were completely separate, but it's it's it is amazing how bands find replacements in the weirdest places. Oh yeah, you know they they try auditioning all these people and it's somebody out of nowhere. <laughs> okay, nineteen eighty seven, generating footage for the Rattle and Hum documentary. YouTube plays a free Save the Yuppie concert at Justin Herman Plaza in San Francisco. An arrest, an arrest warrant is issued for Bono after he spray paints rock and roll stops traffic on a fountain sculpture. See what I mean? He was a rebel without a clue. Rebel, mm-hmm. rebel without a cause. Yep. Huh. I never saw Rattle and Hum. I've always wanted to. 
I was, I'm not a giant U2 fan. I do like the, you know, the the radio singles and the hits. Like I I, I think they write some really cool songs, and you know, the Edge is able to make really cool you know like soundscapes like guitar playing wise. But I never like dove into them. But I've always wanted to see Rattle and Hum. I'm I'm a I'm a kind of a fan of their early stuff. It was more more raw. Yeah. Yeah, and it, I I really liked it. I remember when they first came out. Back in the day, there it was like um like it got imported here and it was all like bootleg stuff, wasn't it? Yeah. With yeah, you too. Yeah, they were there wasn't a lot of ways to get music. Yeah. Like as easy it is now. So it was kind of uh, you know, alt, yeah, alt alternative kind of stuff. You know, and it was like, and you could hear them on the in the radio, or you see the videos of them live, bootleg copies or whatever. Yeah, you could see them. I was like, wow, this is a great band coming. And it was them and, and the Police. You would there these bands were coming in from Europe, and it was the new the next wave coming through. It's and, crazy and, to think about it though, like how the whole like, well the whole tape trading and underground thing like actually helped build these artists like like yeah. stuff like that does not happen today like it, it can happen today no it just goes right out on yeah exactly YouTube. and then as fast as it comes in it goes away and everyone's already forgotten about it <laughs> uh moving on here to 1995 there's a big jump here in music history um, Sony gets control of the publishing rights to many Beatles songs and Michael Jackson merges his ATV publishing music publishing with Sony music publishing and a deal estimated at $600 million. Jackson purchased the Beatles catalog in 1985 for $47.5 million. There was a video I saw on YouTube not long ago where like, Paul McCartney was talking about Michael Jackson and like Paul McCartney's like, you know, you should really get into, you know, publishing. And that's where, that's where all the money's made. And he says like Michael Jackson, he thought he was joking and like nudged him and said, I'm going to own all your music. And it was like the following week or like the following month or something. Michael Jackson bought the Beatles. catalog. <laughs> <laughs> This is the most gangster shit I've ever heard of in my entire life. <laughs> hey, there's, yeah, there's different ways to musicians make money. I mean, paying, being paid to perform. Large concert tours make a lot of money, but there's a lot of money that has to be put up front, of course. Yeah. And there's a lot of expenses. Yep. Um, you know, it's, it's really expensive to go on the road. Um, and... Also, merchandise, merchandising, mm-hmm. as they say. Yeah. And it's a lot of money made for merchandising, T-shirts and other stuff. But the publishing is the big one because there's so many ways that publishing can get your money, not just um, the music being played on the radio mm-hmm. and you're getting a couple cents for that. There's, you know, got a million radio stations so all this money starts coming in when your songs start being played. Yeah. All of a sudden you realize publishing is the way to go. And they use, and they have, you know, commercials and, and for, for products and images and th- things, everything. There's so much money to be made from publishing. And that was a steal. 
<laughs> yeah. That was really a steal. Hey, was, we're talking the Beatles. You yeah. know, it arguably like one of the most important bands of all time. And and their music is played so much every day now across the world that the, the publishing. And yeah. and then the new wave since I think we talked about it before the new the, the new wave of doing the new way of doing things is artists will at this point with YouTube and and MP3s and just being you know just thrown given away you, know, you copy this you copy this you email to this person so artists aren't making as much as they used to on their publishing rights they have to get more creative hmm. and so they don't want to bother with this so they sell the publishing rights to a company that can then be creative to make money from it. So many people are doing it nowadays. You hear of big artists doing it almost weekly. Yeah. And they and instead of having them, instead of them hustling and their agents or whatever hustling to make money from the publishing rights, they just sell it as a bulk amount. $200 million, $250 million. Here, you take my catalog, you go... I got my two fifty million. I'm set for the rest of my life. Wasn't Fleetwood Mac like a hundred million or something? Yeah, not long ago. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and it's like okay, I don't have to worry about it anymore. I got my money. It goes in the bank. I'm fine. Yeah, I'm ready for the rest of my life. You worry about it. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. You'll get, re- you'll get the rewards. Yeah, but you market it. You. Yeah, exactly. You take your time and you. Yeah, you do it. Yeah, and that's what that's what's happening nowadays because you have to be. Inventive, I guess, is a good word hmm. to, to 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 get the money that you used to be able to get because the only way you could hear a song was being played on the radio. Yeah, exactly. There wasn't YouTube back then. No, <laughs> and so that's where the publishing rights. That's for, why it's kind of changed. For reference, here in 1985, 47.5 million is the equivalent to 121 million dollars today. Even with those numbers, I think 121 million is very, very little for the Beatles catalog yeah. and everything that they had to offer. Like that, that's just a. I, I mean, I don't know. I guess along with the inflation, like for us or like the the newer generations of you know kids or whatever, or young adults, like to me, like 121 million doesn't sound like as crazy. I mean, that's like someone's NFL contract. Like, let's be real. Like 121 million doesn't sound like that much in the grand scheme of things. And the return on that investment. Oh I mean, yeah. How many Beatles songs do you hear in commercials? Mm-hmm. Imagine that you say, sure, you can use this song. You, got, you know, give me $20 million. You can use this Beatles song yeah. in your commercial so you can sell the product. Mm-hmm. And it's the money just, yeah, there's just so much money. And doesn't the Beatles catalog also include uh, the Happy Birthday song too, or something? I'm pretty sure the Beatles own the rights to. I think that's something. <coughs> the Beatles have the birthday song themselves. Okay, yeah. But I think the song Happy Birthday is some something else. I think that's a different setup. Let's be real. Gene Simmons probably owns the rights to that. Yeah. <laughs> but, yeah. But yeah, to play Beatles, play Beatles music, or, or to use it, it's used everywhere, mm-hmm. and, and it's, so you get a return on that investment. Right oh away. yeah, right away. I don't think anybody's going to be selling that to a 
part. They're going to keep. They're going to keep it. <laughs> yeah, they're going to keep that. That's so, like a, that's a national treasure. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, two thousand two. God, that's was that long ago. Yeah. Eight, mi- eight mile, a semi biographical look at Eminem's early days as a struggling rapper in Detroit opens in theaters. The film is a critical and commercial success, and Eminem's "Lose Yourself" becomes the first rap song to win the Oscar for Best Original Song. Now, have you have you, you've seen Eight Mile before, right or no? Yeah, yeah. I I've. It's funny because Eight Mile is like the original, like uh, biopic, if you will, and I love I loved Eight Mile. I thought it was awesome. I still love it to this day. It's kind of funny. I just looked it up. Uh, the gross revenue from that movie was uh, two hundred and forty-two million dollars. So put that into perspective, based off the Beatles catalog. Yeah. <laughs> well, that when that I remember when that movie first came out, they were advertising for it. I remember people looked at it like, "Oh, this is this movie's not going to be any good. It's about rap and it's a white guy and how's this going to?" And it wound up like, "Wow, yeah." It took it took it mainstream. Yes, it did. If he wasn't already a household name by two thousand and two, he was definitely a household name after that movie came out. That just went to such a wide audience. Funny too. I'm looking at it. The budget for Eight Mile was forty one million dollars. They grossed two hundred million. And having a rap song win the Oscar for best original song. Yeah, that's just. Legitimized everything. Oh yeah, legitimized it. And the the uh, the track listing on the um, track mm-hmm. listing on the soundtracks actually really good too. It's a very good um, it's a very good uh, compilation, and you know you don't even have to just like the movie in order to like the like the soundtrack. But obviously, lose yourself was the the huge thing behind it. But um, yeah, it's just it's just crazy. I I remember when that came out, and I remember it being like, oh my god, like like Eminem made it. <laughs> That's funny. Well, speaking of making it, uh, actually that doesn't work. But I thought of an interesting topic, and this is how much planning goes into these episodes. Michael was coming over today. To record, we had nothing, nothing planned, nothing, anything. So even with Steve not here, the the spirit of the show is still the same that it's always been: extremely last minute and half cocked, informative reviews or you know uh, opinions. So the idea was to think of the most iconic instruments of all time. Now. I'm just going to get it out of the way very, very fast. Eddie Van Halen's Frankenstein. Super iconic guitar um, featured on every Van Halen album. At at one point or another, it's been on every single album. Um, made out of just ba- basically junk parts. Um, yeah. The body came from Boogie Bodies, who was owned by Wayne Charvel. It was a, fa- it was a second, so it had like a knot in the wood. So the body was 50 bucks, the neck was 80, and he got a pickup out of a old ES-335 he had, and um, the rest is history. No. <laughs> it's 
put a paint job on it, and then that was it. He soldered it all different. Yeah, and um, from what I um, from what I understand is he's had like he had multiple like strats and everything, but he knew nothing about wiring any of it. So he thought, okay, I have a you know a positive, a negative, and a ground. So just solder it and hey i got sound yeah and then that was it <laughs> but yeah i wanted to get that one out of the way quick because obviously i couldn't yeah. have a conversation without that coming up he he wasn't tom schultz with an mit degree from yeah exactly you know, with an mit degree creating all those sounds for boston yeah exactly he, you know, that's how he made the whole first boston album because he all this engineering and technical knowledge from mit he he gets, now just did it kind of yeah, just throw it, it together. <laughs> <laughs> That's so funny. And that Tom Schultz, it I mean, the stuff that he's created, he doesn't get nearly the nah, enough recognition right. as he should. Yeah, he changed he changed electronic Oh yeah. How music was delivered because I mean it's a tangent, but just when the first Boston album came out, it was like Wow, this good. This how good can music sound <laughs> on vinyl? On this, it's like wow, the sound of this album is incredible. Yeah, and it just blew everybody away, and it started it started that path to making things sound better. Yeah, you could hear everything, and hear the singers and the the guitars and the str- the hands moving on the strings and, and even the picking. It's like wow, I could never hear this stuff before. And the invention of the rock man. And, yeah. you know, for for it being like a dumb, like, headphone amp thing, from from what I've heard, it had very, very good, like, tones you can get out of it. Yeah. And it didn't stop at just, like, the headphone thing either. Def Leppard used that on uh, on Hysteria. It's all over that album. And that's one of the biggest albums of all time. Just yeah. they, they used a headphone amp because it sounded that good. They came out. <laughs> When when I used to play when I played live in the eighties, we had no amps on stage. I went through direct to the PA, came back through monitors. Our guitar player had two walk um, Rockmans, one set to clean and one set to dirty, and he had a foot switch to switch between them. That's all he had. He had no amp on stage. And he would come back through the monitor. Yeah. The bass player had, they had a bass rockman back there also. Oh, okay. Also. So he had a bass rockman. Yeah. And the drummer had electronic drums, Simmons drums. So we had no sound coming off the stage. <laughs> and the sound man just loved it because he could control everything out front. Oh, yeah. So there was no stage volume. He had side fill monitors and it sounded like a stereo system. Yeah. <laughs> and everything's so, perfect yeah it's, it's total control and yeah Tom Schultz came out with so many products from that yeah. actual heads guitar amp heads that you could use to get that sound and it all it kind of all started by just <clears throat> just putting a master volume on a Marshall amp yeah so you didn't have to turn you could overdrive you could overdrive the input without having to turn it up to 10 yep. or 11 you didn't have to turn it all the way up you could have it turned all the way up, but the master volume all the way down and just turn it up a little bit and you'd have the distorted sound without it being so loud. Well, even going back to the Van Halen thing, he used that, the Variac 
transform <laughs> variable transformer right. instead of getting an amp modded with a you know a master mm-hmm. volume. I mean nowadays it's like oh well you have a master volume you have a master volume for each channel now. Yeah. But it's funny like drawing the comparison between the two. Like you have one guy that's like super like knowledgeable and you know like an innovator and like able to do all this crazy shit. Then you got this other guy that's just doing it like like the equivalent of like. A caveman. He's making it up as he goes along. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, hey, that works. I'll do that. <laughs> <laughs> That's so funny. <laughs> so what do you got on your list? Okay. Um, I have guitars, bass, drums, keyboards. I have all kinds of stuff. Um, a guitar that I really think is iconic um, is Peter Frampton's Black Les Paul with the three pickups. That you see on the cover of Frampton Comes Alive. See, I was going to say that one, but I knew you were going to, so I yeah. left that one out. <laughs> yeah. Um, he still has that guitar. Yeah. He actually, it actually got lost and it got returned to him. Really? Yeah. And um, <clears throat> that was that was him and that guitar. I mean, <laughs> he wasn't playing anything else. Um, so w- what is that? Is that a, it's a 70s Les Paul, right? Or I do believe it is a 70s, yes. Let me look this up here. Oh, wait. The Peter Frampton Phoenix is a 1954. Oh, it's a 54 Les Paul custom. Wow. Yeah, because it was on the cover of Frampton Comes Alive. In 76. Okay. Yes, that guitar at that point was already over 20 years old. That that was basically a vintage guitar then. Damn. We're talking, you know, at the, at this point in time, you know, a 70-year-old 70-year-old instrument. Yeah, he got it back. It got lost somehow and being shipped or something in a plane crash or some some odd story, but it got returned to him and he still has it. That's crazy. But yeah, that, um, I've always liked the look of a Les Paul. Mm-hmm. I've, I've always liked the, I've, I've always liked Peter Frampton's three pickup Les Paul. Yeah. I mean, because, you know, like being a kid and like looking at these things, like obviously more is more and it's like, well, it's got three pickups, so it must be better. <laughs> yeah. The, the, the guitar player and the, the band I was in at the time went out and got one. You know, it was just, it was, guitar players were buying them. Yeah, because it was it was that popular. Um, well, if you out there listening would like to own one, you can find it over on Gibson's website for seven thousand dollars. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, staying in the Les Paul route here, and actually a similar story of a guitar uh, getting missed or missing, and um, refining it is the. Uh, guitar known as the Grail, owned by Zach Wild. Um, that is the iconic uh, Les Paul cream colored with the bullseye, the you know the the black bullseye graphic on it. And um, if I if I'm reading correctly here, let's see, the Grail is a. Nine, 
19... It's a 1978 Les Paul Custom. Um, what made the the story behind it is actually funny. So he gets the you know the the opportunity and the audition to play with um, Ozzy Osbourne, and when he you know goes to the audition at this point it's a less just a regular Les Paul Custom looked completely stock, but. The that guitar is, you know, iconic because of Randy Rhodes, the original Ozzy guitar player. So he's like, "Hey, I got this photo shoot coming up, you know, with Ozzy, whatever. I gotta, I gotta get a painting. He sends it to a painter. He wants it to be, um, the Alfred Hitchcock beginning of uh, Vertigo. Mm-hmm. That's what it originally was supposed to be. And when he showed up. That is the one that he got. <laughs> Personally, I think he made that. Actually, I believe this might even be the picture. And um, I think he uh, I think he made the right choice. He was just kind of like, hey, well, now now I have it. And that's it. But um, yeah, so it's a, a Gibson Les Paul custom. It's got uh, EMGs in it and it's. I, I it's one of my favorite Les Pauls. I'm not a giant um I'm not a giant guy about, you know, signature models and stuff like that. But this one, like uh, you know, when I first started playing guitar and everything, wanting wanting to be like Zach Wilde, that was one of the only ones the only signature models that I would actually want to get. And if you would like to find one um, let's see here. If you would like to find yourself a Zach Wild Les Paul custom, good luck, first off. And second off, be ready to drop a thousand dollars on a Epiphone or ten thousand for Gibson Custom Shop. Well worth your money. <laughs> I can't as keyboards. Keith Emerson's modular Moog synthesizer. Okay. If you take a look and you find a picture of Keith Emerson playing live, you will always see this giant thing behind him, the modular Moog with all the wires. It was the first one of its kind that came out of a lab and he, they put it on stage. And, um, and it had a detachable keyboard. Okay. And, this uh, right here. Yep. <laughs> you know, it's funny. I've seen the pictures of Keith Emerson, and I've seen this before. I had no idea what it actually was. I was just like, oh, my God. Like, yeah. I, I originally thought it was just, like, for show. No. It, it, but it that's was, part of the keyboard. That's that's the that's entire thing. That's how you make the sounds. You have to patch all the... One has the oscillators, then the, the filters, and the volume... And the ring modulators, all the different parts of a sound, of synth sound that come together. Yeah. Are all those different modules all put together. And he was the first one ever to take it out on the road and have the keyboard. Yeah. And um, and also had a bar on it, like um, where you would put your finger on it, it would it would make a, that, a sound. And up, up and down the bar, it would make oh, okay. the, the pitch go up and down. 
So he used that as a prop on stage. <laughs> and um, But he was the first one to use um, that on stage like that. And I think you can... I think one of the major music retailers kind of... The, the modular synths kind of come back into fashion. They put one to, one together and they offered it for sale. It was like $150,000. Yeah, that is... Uh, yeah, but if you look at pictures of Keith Emerson... Um, I want to see if they have... Whoops, modular motorcycle helmets. <laughs> modular. Moog. Yeah, see, they come out with... With all the, it's really big now having all these modules again now. Yeah, you can buy them all separately now and put together your own. That's pretty cool. So if you're looking to put together something similar, or not really similar, I guess just a smaller version, because you know technology, of course, has uh, yeah. gotten better. You can find them for under two grand. Yeah, you can buy all the little pieces and put it all together yourself. That's so crazy. But that was very unique and very iconic towards him. He's the only one that had something like that on stage. And um, I wonder how it how it fared in touring. That was horrible. Yeah, I can only imagine they would have to, like. They would have to plug it in six hours before the show so it would warm up enough to be in tune and stay in tune. That's it was wild. constantly out of tune. Is he uh, still touring with it to this day? Well, he's dead. Oh. Keith, Emerson's, Keith Emerson's dead. He's gone. You're <laughs> he committed suicide. Now he committed suicide was about ten years ago. Uh, no, maybe five years ago. Yes, but um, he was touring with it on his last tour. Okay. If you look up, look up Keith Emerson. Yeah, 2016. Five five years. Yes. Um, he had a hand injury. I had a problem with his hand, and he became very depressed, and he committed suicide. Okay. It's a shame, but there you see him. Yeah, there there he is on there, his last it, tour playing it. It's always there. That's just crazy. Yeah. It's just a huge piece of like uh, analog, yeah, all patched together to make sounds. It's just crazy. Like, it's kind of funny though, and it, you know, it just goes to show you that there is no substitution for like analog, you yeah. know, gear. You know, that when in the state of modelers and you know modulators and and computer-based software and all this other stuff, there's no substitute. Yeah. He always, for, he always had it. Yeah. <laughs> it was just crazy. So Looks like, like he's time. trying to get in touch with, like, Russia or something with it. Yeah. <laughs> no, he always had that. No matter he can't, he he used other things that were more state-of-the-art. Um, he, I mean, he always had a Hammond, of course, a Hammond B3. Um, but he had modern... Korg keyboards. He had modern yeah. Yamaha keyboards. He he always had stuff, but he always had that. That's crazy. <laughs> always had that behind him. <laughs> always had that behind him. Um, speaking of uh, innovation and you know constantly doing new things and pushing boundaries and everything in that in that you know wheelhouse. We couldn't have a iconic instrument discussion without bringing up the log. For those of you that don't know, this is basically the first solid body electric guitar built by Les Paul 
you know, obviously most known for the Gibson Les Paul. But when he originally tried to do his partnership with Gibson back in the day, this is well before he was, you know, established of who he was. He had basically a, it was a log. It was, was, you know, basically four by four log with pickups on it and, you know, a bridge and just had a neck on it. And it was a solid body electric guitar. Very easy to produce, you know, easily, easily made. And, um, Gibson was just like, you know, uh, I'm not going to quote them word for word, but I'm pretty sure they said something along the lines of what the fuck are you doing with this? So he made detachable wings for it, which is now a common practice in, you know, uh, semi hollow and, you know, hollow body guitars. The, this is standard practice now, but this was the, the precursor to what we know as the Gibson Les Paul. And I don't think we could have a discussion on iconic instruments without bringing that up at least one time. Um, super, super, super important instrument. The log. Unfortunately, you can't buy one of these. No. I mean... They're uh, museums. Yeah. Uh, also, another innovator, so stick with keyboards, Edgar Winter, um, his ARP... 2600, which was a new, smaller synthesizer that, that you could use. It still had a separate panel and a separate keyboard. There he is right there. Yep. He was the first one to take it and strap it around him and <laughs> run around the stage playing playing keyboard and yeah. a long cable back to the control panel. And if, if you want to see something really incredible is, is if you YouTube... Back to his appearance. I don't know if it was Don Kirshner's rock concert or the Midnight Special of him doing Frankenstein. Yeah. And, um, uh, I mean, the guy played everything. He played saxophone. He played drums. And he had the keyboard. He, he practically played the whole song by himself. But um, with Rick Derringer <clears throat> on, on guitar. Yeah. And it's an amazing video of him having the keyboard, the, 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 the control panel, and then, and then picking up a pair of sticks, playing the timbales, grabbing the saxophone. It's just a really great video, and it's live. <laughs> That's on, crazy. On the Midnight Special, or, or Don Kershaw's, I forget which one it was. But it's really cool. And he still does it. I mean, there was a, there's a video of him doing it. It's probably 10 years old now, the video of him with the, um, the Ringo Stars band. Okay. Of him playing it live. That's with, cool. With Rick Derringer on guitar and him playing it live. And it still sounds as good as ever. But he, he was the first one to strap a keyboard around his neck and run around the stage with it. That's crazy. And so it's like he's iconic for that. Yeah. And that instrument for taking the ARP 2600 out of the lab and onto the stage. <laughs> so he kind of did almost the same thing. It's just his was, I think, a little bit more. Uh, his was smaller. Yeah, it was a little <laughs> bit easier to get around. <laughs> yeah. You didn't need a road crew to get that around. <laughs> yeah, because the ARP 2600 was, was meant for home or lab use. It was actually, yeah. it had you know, had little latches on it. You fold it up and carry it like a suitcase. Yeah. And it was for that kind of, it was more, it was portable, but it was never meant to be played on stage <laughs> like that. And he, he did that. He took it to that level. 
if you are looking for an ARP 2600. Yeah, they, they started making them again. Yeah, you can find, well, the software for $149. Software, yeah. um, they, start, they, start, they started making the smaller Odyssey again. Korg started making those again. I don't know if you... Can, okay, here I, you go. Here's a legit one. Yep. Original one. Yeah. Uh, completely restored here on Reverb for eleven eleven thousand five hundred dollars basically. Yeah. Looks in looks like in good shape. I mean then again I've never seen one in person to be able to do it, but um Yeah. That one I don't think he has the keyboard. He doesn't even have the keyboard. Yeah, so <laughs> you're talking eleven five and then I I I could probably uh be safe to assume you can't just put any keyboard into it. No. Well you, you can, it just has to have the right um kind of interface. That's crazy. Yeah, but that he was the first one to do that. That's wild. Um moving on here to more iconic and innovating things. Um I couldn't have Eddie Van Halen in this discussion and Zach Wilde in this discussion without bringing up Randy Rhodes. Um, I had that on the list. His, which his, which his, one though? Did you have the Concord? Um, I just had the flying V. I didn't know which one it was, but he's the one that made the flying V he, popularized. Yes. The so the flying v. Randy had a couple V's. The first one was um, built by Carl Sandoval. Um, it's called the Polka Dot. The Sandoval Polka Dot Flying V. This is the one that you, if you type in Randy Rhodes on Google, this is the picture that's going to come up. Is this guitar? Is this the one you're talking about, Michael? No, I was talking about the plain one. Okay. You're so talking then, about the Polka Dot one. I was talking about the regular, I think it was a gold top one. Road the Rhodes V this one, yeah, yeah. Well, so what happened? What happened with Randy's thing was he had the Sandoval V, and he then teamed up with Jackson Guitars. Now with Jackson, he designed the Concord. The Concord was you know a very uh, angular V you know, made them more, made it look more like web, you know, basically like a weapon. And, um, Jackson loved it so much that they were going to put it into production, but then they came to the conclusion and basically created the Jackson Rhodes V. The Jackson Rhodes is very similar, very similar in body styling but it is moved, um, as you can see here, the body was moved down, allowed for better access on the frets, and um, just all around, just like a super awesome, badass metal-looking guitar. And, you know, everyone, everyone and their brother, if you're, you know, if you're a heavy metal guy, you're going to be playing in Rhodes. It's just the way it is. Um, but the one, the one that I, the, the one I wanted to shed, uh, light on was the Concord because, uh, to just your average music fan or average, you know, guitar connoisseur, if you will, 
most people wouldn't know the difference between the Rhodes V and the Concord V. And I think the Concord V is the one that, uh, is the one I feel like is the most iconic or should be the most iconic. Like this picture here. I'm pretty sure everyone has seen that one. Yeah. So what do you got next, Michael? Well, drums. I'm going to go drums. <laughs> okay. John Bonham and Keith Moon. Um, the acrylic drum sets. Yep. And also John Bonham with the 26-inch bass drum. Huge, huge bass drum. And that's how he got that's how he got that sound. <laughs> yeah. And um just the acrylic drum set for both of them and that big that big bass drum. It was just I, so iconic at the time. Before that everybody used these real small bass drums and got real little tight sound the bass drum. Yeah. Then all of a sudden it's just boom, boom. And it just it changed they both together they changed the sound yeah. of a rock drum roll. What what a rock drummer sound? Those like. were the um, the uh, Vista lights, right? Or uh, Acrylic lights? Or, yes. they're, they were yeah. Ludwig's. Um, trying to see here if you can even find them online. Oh yeah, Vista light guitar center. You can find a Vista light kit for thirty seven hundred dollars. Of course, that's <laughs> just a shell pack, but it's the. John Bonham sizes. It's literally called the Ludwig Vista Light Zep Five piece. The size of that bass drum. Oh yeah, <laughs> huge. Let's see if we can pull up the uh, massive sizes. <laughs> Reinforced seam, molded acrylic shell. Um, obviously we're not we're not drummers, so we don't know anything about uh. But the twenty six inch bass drum. That was that was yeah. the thing. That's how they, he got that sound, and that's. And it can and it, and it comes with a superphonic snare too. That that's pretty cool. But yeah, um yeah, the the when you see an acrylic drum set, especially one that's orange, yeah. you know exactly who it is. It's like one it, you know, it's funny because all drums kind of look alike, you know, and you know, there's obviously some variations, but that particular kit, when you yeah. see it, you know 100% what it is. Yeah. And what it's going to sound like. Yeah. <laughs> I know Keith Moon used them too, but Keith Moon was more um, known for his drum set blowing up on stage. Yeah. And 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 breaking Peter, Pete Townsend's eardrum. <laughs> so he became deaf for the rest of his life. But uh, no, he but, but uh, Keith Moon also used the acrylic ones also. <clears throat> it's just wild. And the fact that, well, it stands the test of time that you're able to buy one right now. Yeah, I mean, that's how iconic it was. Yeah. It's just crazy. Um, <clears throat> Speaking of the test of time, I want to bring up a guitar that looks like it has seen all of time and then came back and then went back again. I want to talk about Willie Nelson's Willie trigger. Nelson's trigger, yep. Um, <laughs> um, Trigger is, if I recall, I think it's a 1969. Um, will it's a let's see here, it's a Martin, yeah, nylon. yeah, Norton, uh, yeah, Norton. It's a Martin N20. Um, he bought it in 1969 and has literally been on everything that he's done since. Um, <coughs> 
it's it's uh, you you can't picture Willie Nelson without this guitar in his hand, and it has literally been it's been played so much and so hard throughout the years that he literally wore a hole into the face of the guitar, like just full blown a hole. I think a few years back, I saw a video on YouTube of them um, refurbishing this guitar. And um, it's just crazy. And, you know, it's like I said, it's it's just so iconic because you can't find a picture of Willie Nelson without him holding this guitar. It's, you know, it's become synonymous with him. Just wild. So, yeah, uh, Trigger is a... Uh, Martin Acoustic, um, an N20. Um, let's see here. Are you able to find one online? Martin. Martin N20. Yeah, probably. Martin guitars are very expensive because each one is handmade. Oh, yeah. Um, right up in Bethlehem. I think yeah, it is, right? Yeah, actually not far from us at all. Well, technically not far. Um, you can find used ones on reverb. Uh, here's a 1984 Martin N20 for $2,400. So, uh, you know, if you want to get your Willie Nelson on, head over to, uh, head on down to reverb.com and go find yourself a, oh, here we go. 1998 Willie Nelson model, $30,000. Yep. (laughs) Wild. (laughs) For a nylon acoustic guitar. <laughs> okay. Um, let's switch to bass guitar, which, of course, Paul McCartney's the Hofner Beetle bass. Damn it. <laughs> <laughs> the left-handed Hofner Beetle bass. That is, you know. Probably one of the most iconic basses yeah. of all time. It's just um, the Paul, uh, yeah. I'm being left-handed, too. Uh, viola bass, right? Yeah. The Paul McCartney Hofner bass. Let's see if we can. It's 1963. 1963 Hofner. Um, this is one of those other things that's, um, completely synonymous with one person. He still plays it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, he still plays it. It's still played to this day. Um, It's... When you think of the Beatles, it's the guitar you think of. Mm -hmm. Like, yes, they, you know, they played, you know, various Fenders and Rickenbackers and stuff like that. And... But when you talk about the Beatles or... Actually, you know what? We're going to try... We're going to give this a... We're going to give this a try real quick. We're going to type in the Beatles on Google search, right? And we're going to see how fast it comes up with that bass. Second row. (laughs) And then there it is again. And of course, there's another iconic instrument right there also, which is um, Ringo's Ludwig. Oh, yeah. Drum set. With the Beatles logo on the front. Iconic drum set. One Tom Tom, one floor Tom Tom. Um, 
I do believe it was black and one ride symbol, one crash symbol, and a hi-hat. <laughs> that's it. Yeah. And that's all he ever played. Well, that's the thing. He he was very simplistic with everything he did, and his drum kit was of no no exception. And it was just yep. it was just it is it, it it's all he needed. Yep. And you would think for a band of the caliper of the Beatles, you know, you'd have some crazy giant kit and you no, just didn't need it with that kind of music. That's what it was. So right here, 1963 Ludwig Super Classic Ringo Beetle and Black Oyster Pearl on Reverb. You can find it for $45,000. <laughs> um, in 2009, they did a reissue of this drum kit, and it was basically the Ringo Starr mm-hmm. signature series for 23000 So it was used. Black Pearl. Okay. Yeah, Black Oyster Pearl. It's the one he used on the Ed Sullivan show, I think. Yeah. Yep. And then going back here to the um, viola bass, I you can find you can find these all over the place. Yeah. Uh, Epiphone makes them. <clears throat> you know you can. Let's see, can you find a Hoffner one? Pretty sure they make they still make them. Um, Hoffner for uh, four hundred fifty bucks. eBay, you can find them. Yeah, that's just crazy. Yeah, but um, the Ringo the Ringo Star kit, I'm actually really surprised at how much that thing's worth. <laughs> For it being basically just like a run of the mill Ludwig kit that anybody could have bought at that point in time. <clears throat> Another super iconic instrument that you cannot um, you cannot have a a conversation about iconic instruments and not have it in here is the Gene Simmons axe bass. Yep. Yeah. The old axe. Yes. Um, I'm trying to see here. I want to get some information about it. The Gene Simmons axe. I saw a copy of this at on the wall. Well, it wasn't a copy. It was when he actually played at the hard rock down in Atlantic city. There was one of these on the wall signed by him. Oh, wow. Yeah. Um, 1979. Oh, hold on. Here we go. Um, according to Steve Carr's first version of the act shown below was made for Gene in 1978. Um, it was used for a few shows that year, but no photographic evidence exists. So we're just going to say 1978 custom made base. Uh, from a luthier here. Um, it was made by Steve Carr, um, who was Ace Frehley's guitar tech. And, uh, I mean, let's be real. When you're growing up, you're going to, you're going to start playing music and you come across kiss. There's nothing more badass than Gene Simmons carrying around an ax, spitting blood and fire while playing it. I mean, granted, (coughs) Kiss isn't the most amazing band in the world, but they were extremely iconic and visually pleasing. And, uh, yeah, the Gene Simmons basses are just absolutely crazy. Can you purchase one of these online? Can you buy these? I guess you can buy copies of this, right? Yeah, Court. Court was making them. Oh, wow. 
So yeah, 2010 Court GSX2 eBay two thousand dollars. Hmm. That's the thing. I I, I like to find stuff on Reverb because like you know it's like legit stuff if it's there, and you're not gonna have some you know cheap Chinese copy or whatever. But yeah, I guess you, the only way you're gonna get one of these bases is to get one from when Court made them in 2010 or you're going to get a knockoff copy off of Alibaba or DHgate. <laughs> As all, um, back to drums. Neil Peart's 360 degree DW and Roland V drum kit. Oh yeah. That he used. Snakes and Arrows. Snakes and Arrows, yep. The one that would, he, in the, Depending on what song they played, the drum stage would turn. Yeah. The drum riser would turn. And he had the Simmons, or the, the Roland electronic kit, and then turn it around to the DW kit. Um, it was iconic because he was the first one to, to do it that way. I mean, other drummers had rotating stages before. I mean, Carl Palmer did it with gongs and... Hmm. And, and things and other drummers have done it but he did it an entirely new kit <laughs> electronic kit back to an acoustic kit back to an electronic I mean then he started incorporating them into this kit so he could take, keep it all in front of him yeah but the, that particular kit was iconic for him and for for this the way it was set up this is it's incredible and obviously we lost him back uh back a couple years back now um this drum kit now resides at dw factory it sits right in their showroom now and um and this one's all dw look for the one see if you can find a picture of the one that he had where it was the electronic kit was behind him yeah i think that's this one right here michael no no is is that the one with the rollins yeah, there's rolling pieces right there. Okay, and that's yep. And then roll because he would he would turn around and and just play a whole another kit. Had a <laughs> had a rolling bass drum and everything. He'd be playing electronic kit and yeah. then, and then he the stage was spinning. He would just turn around and play the acoustic, depending on what song they were playing. Yeah, because a lot of those songs, the newer songs, had the electronic drums on them. And see, it's so funny that we talked about Ringo Starr earlier. Like in such a simplistic yeah. kit, and you have you literally have the polar opposite of that right yeah. here with this kit. Um, unfortunately, you cannot purchase this kit or anything no. close to it. Um, if you want something similar to this, you're gonna have to piecemeal it. And um, if I know DW drums like I know DW drums, you're gonna be paying a lot yeah. of money to recreate this. Plus, he incorporated all the chimes. Oh yeah, and all the different uh, percussive percussion stuff. All the symbols, the wood uh, blocks, everything. Yeah, it's just an insane <clears throat> drum kit. Um, I have a bunch of stuff on this list here, but I don't want to get on you know too crazy of a tangent. So I'm just going to I'm just going to blurt out a few of them that I think deserve some uh, some recognition. Um, Jimmy Page is actually on my list twice. Jimmy Page has the number one fifty nine Les Paul. Mm-hmm. the standard that everyone knows. Like when you think of a Les Paul standard, that's the one you think of. 
And of course the the EDS twelve seventy five double neck double stairway neck. to heaven like, stairway to heaven yeah. guitar. Um, <clears throat> uh, staying in the Gibson realm, BB King's Lucille. Right. Yes. But Lucille, I read when I was when I was researching this stuff, Lucille isn't that one guitar. He named all of his guitars Lucille. Okay. So Lucille at one point was a Telecaster. At one point it was a Strat. At one point it was a 335, and of now it's a 355. Um. Uh, Tom Morello from Rage Against the Machine has his Arm the Homeless guitar, which is the iconic blue Kramer Super Strat guitar with the hippo stickers on it that says Arm the Homeless. Yeah. Um. Just a super cool instrument. You know, uh, the stuff that he was able to do with it is just incredible. Um, for the last two I have here are super, super iconic. Um, Angus Young with his SG. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) SGs are not as popular. Yeah. But he, he made it popular also kind of in a progressive kind of way. Um, uh, Martin Bar Martin Bar from Jeff Tall also played a Gibson SG. Oh, okay. And got incredible sounds out of it, just yeah. like that. So it made the SG more popular. They're with ACDC. Yeah, they're cool guitars. Yeah, I mean they look sinister too, and you know it's it's funny because you have like Tony Iommi from Black Sabbath that played one or still plays one, and um, but if the second you think of an SG, you're thinking of Angus yeah. Young yeah. running around the stage. And the last one to round out my list is the Red Special made by Brian May. Oh, um, we are talking about earlier about homemade guitars and innovations and everything. This guitar was literally made out of a tabletop or it was, uh, like a mantle piece. And the pickups were hand wound by uh, Brian May and his father. Like it was... That there was no, you couldn't get any more homemade than what this guitar was, and all the Queen music that was made from it. I mean, he still has the original. I believe he still plays the original to this day. I mean, we're talking a guitar that has literally stood the test of time and has created some iconic music, and probably one of the probably one of the most iconic ones on this list. Or at least on mine. So what else do you have, Michael? Um, Bo Diddley's Cigar, cigar Box oh, from yeah. Gretsch. <laughs> and that was something, you see that, and he's like, oh, Bo Diddley. Um, uh, Stevie Ray Vaughan had his number one Strat. You know, I was, saw that in person. Yeah, that's a very iconic guitar. Eric Clapton's Blackie. Yeah. Strat, again. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> Um, just, just to see that guitar, you, know, you could tell it was from him. Um, Southern Rock, I'm going to go Southern Rock. Greg Allman's Hammond B3. He always played the Hammond throughout his whole, he'd always be singing, but he'd always be behind his Hammond yeah. B3. So it was like, he made it iconic because he was always sitting behind it. And he and all the Allman Brothers songs had Hammond B3 in it because he was always playing it. So it became a part of the Southern Rock Allman Brothers band. Yep. There it is, yeah. I think it's in, it might be in the Rock, I think it's in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. I was there 
I think it was there. Yeah, but he was always playing it. Um, Buddy Rich's drums, drum set, the one he played, um, was a Radio King Slingerland White Marine Pearl. Every picture you see of Buddy Rich playing, he is playing that drum kit. And it became him and Gene Krupa, Gene Krupa being the first, created the modern drum kit, the tr- what they call the trap kit. Okay. Bass drum, snare, toms, hi-hats, cymbals. That's the trap kit. And Buddy Rich played, you know, followed in the steps of Gene Krupa, and that was his iconic drum set that he always played. When, you know, not many people played drum sets back then. Yeah. And he did. Most, most of the time he had a percussion section. He had a guy playing bass drum and a guy playing snare drum, This, but actually having a single drummer. And so that was an iconic kit by Buddy Rich. I don't know if you can see it. Yeah, that's it. <clears throat> yeah, if you were to, well, there is one on Reverb currently for uh, $33,000. Very, very iconic to see him playing. Um, <coughs> someone, an iconic instrument, that you see is Chris Squire always playing the Rick, Rickenbacker bass. Yeah. The Red Rick, he made that popular, and um, he always played that. Um, Rick Nielsen, for Cheap Trick, the five-neck guitar. Oh, my God. He has so many iconic yeah, guitars. <laughs> we, we opened up for them, and he had 30 guitars backstage, all lined up, ready to go. But his five-neck one yeah. was the one that you always see him, pictures of him in. With as when you see that, you say, Oh, it's Rick Nielsen's guitar. <laughs> had five, had five necks, five necks on it. Um, <clears throat> couple other ones. Uh, Prince's cloud guitar. Oh, yeah. Prince has a couple of them. Yeah. The uh, the Prince symbol purple guitar, too. The one he played at the Super Bowl, yes, right? The symbol, yeah, yeah, that one. But the cloud guitar was a Schecter. That's um, crazy. Some iconic stuff. Let me see. Uh, Rick Wakeman and his mini Moog. Mm-hmm. He always has. He always has at least two mini moogs on stage. He's the <laughs> one that brought the mini moog up on stage to play with. I'm trying to think of other keyboard ones I have here. I think that's Keith Emerson's modular moog. We had that one. Now here's Springsteen. Mm-hmm. Springsteen, you always see him with that Fender guitar, and everybody thinks it's a Telecaster. It is but not. It's not. It's a, a um, Esquire. It's an Esquire. Yep, modified to the hill. It's on the it's on the cover of Born to Run. Yep, and, and that, I mean we're talking about iconic instruments. Born to Run is first off probably the most American album you could ever find, right? And that guitar is on the cover of it. Yeah, yeah, and it was an actual it was a Fender Esquire. So that's I guess that would be an iconic guitar. Um, I think that's about it. Well, I guess that kind of wraps up this topic then. This yeah. one's actually kind of fun. I, I did like doing this and like researching these guitars and yeah. instruments and stuff. It's just neat and, you know, to think of, you know, this is just like, like the, at one point, these were just normal instruments. Right. And, you know, sometimes in the case of, you know, like uh, Eddie Van Halen's Frankenstein or the SG or... You know, the Bonham drum kit and the Neil Peart kit. Like, it just, 
it like transcends past the um you know the the creator or even the artist playing it and it becomes its own entity. Yeah. And um yeah, it's just crazy. So what do you think? Was there any instruments we did not bring up that we should have? I mean, I think we hit pretty much all of the important ones. Maybe besides like Hendrix's Monterey Strat that he lit oh, on yeah. fire. That that was a big one. Um get at us on our social media accounts. Instagram and Twitter at RATM Podcast. Facebook.com slash RATM Podcast. YouTube search Rage Against the Mainstream Podcast. And as always, you can find us on our email, RATM Podcast at gmail.com. But let's get into our personal suggestions for this week. Um, my suggestion for this week is to check out the 2021 single from Black Label Society uh, do, uh, from Doom Crew Incorporated. This is going to be the album that's coming out called uh, Set You Free. Um, I instantly got vibes of, I don't want to say like Ghost because I don't want to put Zach Wild in that uh, in that realm. But it's definitely more of a modern, a modern take on Black Label Society, and the um, the addition of Dario Lorena playing guitar and them two do like a doling solo type thing towards the end of the song. It's just an incredibly good song. Um, I can't wait to see what uh, what else Zach and the guys in Black Label Society have for us next. So you know. Go check it out. Uh, set you free, Black Label Society. What do you got, Michael? There's, I don't know if I've ever mentioned Kansas. Have I ever mentioned Kansas? We've, me and you have talked about Kansas. I don't know if you ever suggested them for the show before. I, I'm learning a um, a, a song for this for this band, and I'm listening to this album. Uh, the album's Point of No Return from 1977. It's right after their big Leftover Leftoverture album, which made them mega stars. Hmm. And then, they're, you know, any time a band has a this mega hit album, the next album was always kind of like, eh, kind of a little bit of a letdown. Maybe. Yeah. Most, <laughs> they, this album takes it to a new level of songwriting. And um, I know there's a couple of hits on it, Dust in the Wind, and, and uh, you know, you think, oh, it's Dust, Dust in the Wind and all. Hmm. But the musicianship, the, the music on this album is like, wow. These guys, these guys were just so tight and every other measures, every other measures in a different time signature. And they're writing stuff and it's, even though it's complicated, it's still very melodic and it's very um, well written. Yeah, and that's I, I would if you're a fan of Kansas, don't forget about this album. And if if you want to hear good melodies and some complicated music, but still not too complicated not to listen to, this album is is really good. What's really your good. Uh, standout track for this? It's a, it's called Closet Chronicles. Okay. 
it's um, it's a song. Believe it or not, it's a song about Howard Hughes. Huh. He yeah. does some, and he didn't realize it until after they say, "Well, it's a great song, um, a great instrumental center part," and then. You find out later, oh, yeah, that song was written about Howard Hughes, and you listen to the words, like, oh, yeah, it kind of all fits in there. But, um, <laughs> no, it's, 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 it's really, it's about six minutes, six and a half minutes long. But, yeah, it's, it's probably the best song on the album. Awesome. So, that's another episode of Raging as a Mainstream Podcast for the books. Um, once again, if you want to find us, you can get us on our social media accounts. Instagram and Twitter at RATM Podcast, Facebook.com slash RATM Podcast. And as always, you can get us on our email, RATM Podcast at gmail.com. Don't forget YouTube. Like, share, subscribe. YouTube search Rage Against the Mainstream Podcast. But until then, this is another episode of Rage Against the Mainstream Podcast for the books. As always, I'm Bill. And I am Michael. Have a good night, guys. Thanks for Thanks for listening. Yeah, thanks for listening and watching. <laughs>